Thanks for checking out this video. My name's Kiara, and I hope you enjoy this message from Redemption Church. Well, good morning. My name's Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here. Glad you decided to join us. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 16 or scroll there in your app if you want to follow along with us. We're kicking off our brand new series entitled The Church. If you're familiar with the TV show The Office, you know that it's a story or a documentary of the modern American workplace, and it's also the only reason I still have Netflix. And the, uh, the Office tells the story of the modern American workplace, and there are series of The Church. Um, well, I guess it's kind of misnamed because we're not going to tell the story of the modern American church. That's not what we're doing. And instead, what we're doing is we're going all the way back to the beginning, and we're seeing what the church was supposed to be. And we're using that, uh, particularly this week, and Jesus' thesis statement on the church to set up the rest of our series. And this really isn't just a four-week series. It's a statement about what we believe the church to be and our role or the role that each of us get to play in it. And so if you're new this week, I'm really glad that you showed up today because you get to find out exactly what we think about all of this. Now, I grew up in church. Uh, we went to three different churches from the time I was zero to 18, and uh, we're incredibly involved in all three of these churches. I mean, they're every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, and I had a, you know, kind of a love and hate relationship with church. I remember asking my mom one time, uh, we get summer off from school. Do we get summer off from church too? The answer was no. Some of you didn't know that. Good to have you back. Just kidding, I love you. Okay, that was a joke, mostly. And I grew up mostly enjoying church, but also, uh, you know, you got into the routine and into the habit. When I was like 15, we tried out this new church, and I don't remember much of what happened that day other than one thing. The guy who was teaching that day, he pulled out M&Ms, and he just started chucking them into the crowd. And I think I hit somebody in the face. I'm sorry. Um, I promised Kavanaugh, who just saying that I'd give her some peanut butter M&M's. So there you go. Good catch, Kav. Better than a Michigan wide receiver. Now, I am full of Michigan jokes today, actually. It's fantastic. I, again, I don't remember much of what happened that Sunday. I just remember that the teaching pastor was throwing M&M's into the crowd. And as we walked out of church that day, I remember saying to my dad, that's not church. Church is boring. Church is uh, crappy water fountains and stale old carpet. That's church, not this. That was, dare I say it, that was fun. I enjoyed it. A couple years later, uh, I met with that same teaching pastor, and I told him that I was writing my senior paper, which you had to write before you graduated, on the American church. And so he gave me some books, and I remember reading these books as a 17-year-old in high school and, and learning things like that the, uh, the church was not growing at the same rate as population, that more churches were closing than opening. And it was alarming, but kind of exciting. And I read those books, and then I, after that, went away to college and studied international business and political science, and I did that for a year and a half, and then I came back to Toledo, and I met with that same pastor, and he asked me, he said, what are we doing here today at lunch at Applebee's? And I said, I want your job someday. I was 19. Talk about youthful arrogance. I was talking to the guy who was leading the 50th largest church in the country at the time. And he said, well, you can start by being an intern. 
fair enough. So I did. And 14 years later, that leads me here in front of you all. And I'm just as fascinated about the church as I was 14 years ago when I wrote that senior paper or 18 years ago when I saw that guy. Let's try this one more time. That's a horrible throw. Tossing M&Ms. Whoever gets it first, it's yours. Um, tossing M&Ms into the crowd. Just as fascinated. Wow, is that your way of telling me to leave? <laughs> okay, well, you're welcome. Um, it's kind of fun. I can actually see you guys now. So there's apparently a light problem. I'm just going to keep going. Where that leaves us is probably this question. So why are we here? Why do we do this each and every week? Why do people, amen, why do people pledge 10% of their incomes to the church? Why do people leave high-paying jobs in the fastest-growing churches in the country? People leave high-paying jobs out in the workplace to go work in churches. There we go. Why does this happen? Why are there churches on every street corner? Why does sometimes church go badly? And a whole bunch of other questions. And so we're going to look today at what Jesus had in mind when he planted the church, what his vision was, was for. And we're going to see that in Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is having a private conversation with his 12 closest followers in a town called Caesarea Philippi, kind of an outskirtish town. And he was in this place that was uh, kind of like a rocky mountainside. And he's up there and he's having this conversation and he asks the disciples a theological question, uh, not for them necessarily to answer personally at first, but to answer more corporately. He said, who do people say that I am? Just curious, what's the talk out there? And they answer the question, and they're like, well, some people think you're a prophet of old. Some people think that you're just another prophet. Other people uh, think that you're a really good teacher or a rabbi. Uh, and, you know, those are some of the answers that are floating around right now. And Jesus goes, okay, cool. Who do you say that I am? I mean, you guys have been following me for a couple of years now. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked them the question that every person will be asked at one point in time, whether on this life or the next on this planet or the afterlife. And the question or the answer to that question is hugely important, not just on how you live this life, but where you will spend eternity. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures at all, we mess with Peter a lot. We kind of uh, pick at him, Peter in the Bible, um, because he made a couple of boneheaded uh, mistakes throughout his time hanging out with Jesus, cut a dude's ear off and a couple other things. But this time he nails it. Jesus goes, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers first and he goes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus goes, well done, Peter. You nailed it. Actually, he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. He says, what you just did, that was supernatural. You can't arrive at that conclusion without a supernatural understanding. This is not something, uh, if you really believe it, if you really confess it, if you really claim to it, it's something that only comes from the Spirit of God. In fact, what we see there is a foreshadowing of the process of salvation. The process of salvation being a confession of Jesus as the Son of God after it um, births in your heart. And so that's what Simon Peter does right there. 
Jesus applauds him, says, good work. And then Jesus goes on in verses 18 and 19. And I cannot overstate the importance of verses 18 and 19 to the history of the church. Actually, I can't overstate the importance of verses 18 and 19 to the history of the world. And some of you, you might think that's an overstatement. You might think, well, that seems a little exaggerated. The history of the world? Think about it. At that moment, when Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples, he's one guy. Rabbis have come and gone. These 12 disciples are poor, uh, relatively, and uneducated. They're young. Contemporary to them is the Roman Empire. I mean, who are you going to bet on? Jesus and his 12 disciples in Caesarea Philippi or Caesar? I mean, the Roman Empire, their military might stretches the Western world. They're recreating the Western world in their own image. Now, I know, I know it makes sense now, but at the time, it didn't make sense at all. I mean, how did this, how did the church, how did it happen? How is it that the church now exists on every corner in America and every country around the world? Why is it that we name our dogs after Roman emperors? And we name our children after the 12 guys surrounding Jesus. How did this happen? Verse 18 and 19 tells us all we need to know. Jesus drops the statement of all statements. He says, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. The word rock there is a Greek word, Petra. And what people have incorrectly over time assumed it to mean was that Jesus was saying, I'm building my church on you, Peter. And so you're, you're to be the Pope and, and you're gonna be the foundation of the church and it'll be passed down from generation to generation. That's not what he meant. What he meant was, I'm building it on this Petra, this statement, this definitive statement, this foundational doctrine. In other words, I am building my entire movement on one doctrinal statement that I am the son of God. Now this statement would be amended a few years later. It would be that Jesus is the son of God and that he rose from the dead. But this, this one statement was to be the foundation of all that the church was going to be. That Jesus was the son of God. How did the church last? How is it that it hasn't ended? Because it was built on the one unchanging thing from the beginning of eternity or the beginning of all. Jesus, the one who defied death. What does this mean about the church? It means the church is all about Jesus. It means it's not a business. It's not about money or offering good service or careers. It's not a club. It's not about social dynamics, connections, or networking. If you go to church to expand your business network, you're not going to church. You're going to a religious version of BNI. It isn't a building. If you pick your church based off of the facility, you're joining a country club, not a church. 
It is something that is holy, fully, completely, utterly, totally, all about Jesus. It revolves around him, worships him, edifies him, enjoys him, and glorifies Jesus. On this one statement, Jesus goes on to say, I will build my church. Eminem break. Great catch. No idea who that is. Well done. Jesus goes on to say this. Tell you, you are Peter, and on this statement or this rock, I will build my church. Jesus will be responsible for the building of his church, but he also tells us something very important. Whose church is it? It's his. Some of us grew up in a church culture where we knew that really the denomination was in charge. And we were allowed to play church, but at any time the denomination could come in and dictate what they wanted. Others of us grew up in a church and we knew that the board was really in charge. And so what the board wanted at any time, the board got. Others of us grew up in a church where there was a CEO of the church and it was really just their business and what they decided went. Others of us grew up in a church and it was the rich people's church or it was the old people's church or it was whoever's. Whose is the church? It's Jesus's. Why has the church outlasted and made it through the Crusades, the Enlightenment, the Dark Ages, the Great Wars, modern technology, skepticism, persecution, the death of its founding leader, the death of all of its subsequent leaders? Why does it just keep on going? Because for 2,000 years, Jesus has had one aim, the growth of his church. That's why. That's why it's still around and Jesus says, I will build my church. What is the church? It's all about Jesus and it's his. I will build my church. Now this word church, we know, signifies a, a, a building, a, a location, a place where you meet, right? Wrong. Now, I mean, very brief church history, the Germans changed the word church much later and it began to be associated with a word that meant physical building. See, the Jews that Jesus was talking to, those disciples, they knew what a temple was. They knew what a synagogue was. They knew what a tabernacle was, a portable location. They knew all of this stuff. And Jesus doesn't look at them and say, on this definitive statement, I will build my synagogue. That would have made plenty of sense to the 12 disciples. Okay, we're going to build a synagogue and, uh, and everyone's going to come to us and we're going to teach there and that's going to happen. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus says, I will build my church. He uses a word ecclesia that at the time had never been associated with spiritual overtones. He uses a word that meant a Greek, it was a Greek word that meant a social movement within the marketplace. Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia and the disciples must have went, you're what? You're, you're going to build your social movement in the marketplace through that idea? What does that even mean, Jesus? See, Jesus drops a bombshell here. He says, I will build my movement, not my synagogue, not my temple. I will build my movement and the gates of hell 
will not prevail against it. In other words, nothing can stop it. He will make it his greatest aim. What is the church? It's all about Jesus. He owns it. It's not a building, it's a movement. And it's powerful, powerful. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The best attempt of the enemy won't stop it. Persecution didn't work. Government regulation hasn't worked. Intellectual or scientific advancement that said will replace religion hasn't stopped it. Now, Jesus made it his greatest aim to make sure that the church would never die. And so from the beginning, the church was never meant to be a meeting place with some stale music and some boring talks or a quick hug. It was a movement of Jesus full of his power. Look what Jesus goes on to say next. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is like a parent looking at their 16-year-old and saying, I will give you the Ferrari, the keys to the Ferrari. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you, church, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you, church, loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. If you read that verse very carefully uh, or even kind of quickly, you can look and see where does the power happen? With the church. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, okay, uh, church, you act. And then uh, what's up here in heaven will come down. We always think of it the other way. We always just sit down there and we go, okay, God, um, whenever you want to do anything, that would be really cool. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'll give you the keys. Church, you want something to happen? You make it happen. What is the church? It releases the power of heaven. It stops the advances of evil. It brings redemption and freedom to the broken. It restores what was lost. That's the church that Jesus came to plant. And so he did. And a few chapters later after this, Jesus dies like he said he would. He raises from the dead like he said he would. That statement that I said earlier, it was amended. And it came not about just the fact that Jesus was the son of God, but he was the risen son of God. Then the Holy Spirit fell. Peter preaches this incredible sermon and the church begins to grow. And then guess what? It stalled. It stalled. Pastor, speaker, author, Andy Stanley tells a little story. It's a hypothetical story. This is not in the Bible, all right? Tells a little story about what might've happened in that moment. Jesus has ascended up into heaven He's up there with God the Father, and God the Father goes, hey, you, you, you taught him everything I told you to teach him, right? Yes, sir, even wrote it in the book. I did. Uh, they, they understand their, their job, right? Yes, sir, did my best. Why aren't they leaving Jerusalem? It's been a couple days since you floated up into heaven. Really cool, by the way, great, great exit. What are they doing? You, you told them this was like the whole world, right? Not just Jerusalem. I made it really clear, God, Father, sorry. And God goes, okay, so maybe you could help him out. So 
Jesus goes, all right, fine. Let me go pack my bags. Jesus packs his bags. He comes back down to earth. Do you think that was the plan? I don't know. He ascended up into heaven. That is a ridiculously good exit. And then seven chapters later, he's coming back. He shows up and there's this guy, Saul. He's riding on a donkey. Jesus shows up, blinds him, knocks him to the ground. Like, I'm back. Saul goes, who are you? And he goes, really? It's me and I'm back. And I know you're trying to kill all the people that think I rose from the dead, but now I want you to be on my team. And I'm gonna change your name. He changes his name to Paul. Paul says, okay, I'll be on your team now. What do I do? He said, well, you're blind right now and I'm gonna keep you that way for three days. So why don't you walk into Jerusalem? You're gonna find this guy named Cornelius. He'll tell you what to do. So he does that. Then he goes and hides out for a little while because he didn't want all the Christians to kill him because they thought he was going to kill them. And then Paul goes crazy. I mean crazy. Like crazy in the best of ways. Like he just looks at this and he goes, okay, the, the, those first 12 you picked, if they won't take it out of Jerusalem, I will. And so Paul just starts planting churches everywhere. And he gets whipped and he gets beaten. In fact, anything that could go wrong does go wrong for Paul. Stone, shipwrecked, cold, hungry, everything. And he plants this one church in a city called Ephesus. And when he goes into Ephesus, he plants the, the church and, and what happens in Ephesus is insane. Like there's one moment where the Holy Spirit is beating people, Okay. Sons of Sceva. It's crazy, but it's really cool. And there's a bunch of naked men running around at the end of the story. Read it for yourself. It's in there. Then they burn all of their witchcraft books, like one big, massive bonfire. Burn them all. So crazy that all of the guys who make their money off of witchcraft are like, we got to get rid of Paul. He's ruining our business. And then later, Paul writes a letter to that same church in Ephesus and he spends the first three chapters just reminding them of the beauty of the gospel. Like at one point he says, hey, you guys were dead. You were all destined to hell. And then Jesus, because he's good, not because you're good, by the way, all of you, you're horrible, but Jesus is awesome and he saves you. And he reminds them of the gospel for three chapters and it's some of the most beautiful writing in all of Christian literature. And so Paul reminds him of the gospel. And then after he reminds him of the gospel, like firmly making sure all of you know, you're not good enough for Jesus, but Jesus loves you anyway. After he makes that sure, after he makes sure that everybody knows you're not a Christian because of anything you've done, you're only a Christian because Jesus is loving. Okay. After he makes that really, really sure, he writes them the end of the chapter or the end of the book, the end of the letter. And he says, okay, now, a few words about the ecclesia. A few words about the ecclesia, the church. A few words about it. I need you guys to know this. And so then Paul, in Ephesians chapter four, writes these words. He says, and he, Jesus, and Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, what it's saying is Jesus is going to take a couple of people. Now, Paul doesn't say this, but what he meant was, and in 2019, that means they'll probably get paid and they'll get to be on staff. Could have never predicted that 2019 years ago. 
But Paul says, that's going to happen. He's going to give a couple of those people, uh, and they're going to have certain roles, but their entire job is going to be not to do the work, but to train everyone else to do the work. And so now, in our modern context, we ask, okay, so does that mean everybody has to be within these walls serving and holding babies and all of this? I mean, it does mean that we should all play a part in the church, absolutely. But when we go back to the original intention of this word, ecclesia, what he was saying is, what you're supposed to do, these five offices, what they're supposed to do is to train the, we would call them everyday attenders who are following Jesus uh, in 2019, we would say that. He said, we are to train them to be the ecclesia, to be the movement of Jesus. Where? In the marketplace. Outside of the walls of the building, the church. In other words, you, businessman, are just as much the church on Tuesday in your meeting as you are Sunday in your seat. And that is true of each and every one of us. That when church is reserved to Sunday morning for a set period of time, then we've taken the thesis statement of Jesus at Caesarea Philippi and we have removed it from the context of the church. And he goes on. So they're going to train you guys, and you're going to go do the work out in the marketplace. Until we all attain, how long are we going to do this? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. There it is. It's about Jesus again. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'll jump down to verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. In other words, that when people enter into the ecclesia, when they enter into the church, they're supposed to arrive at spiritual maturity. And spiritual maturity is not just intellectual knowledge. Spiritual maturity is being able to arrive at where Paul arrived in Acts 20, 24, when he said, but I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself if I may only finish the course of ministry that I have been called to. Spiritual maturity is when you arrive at the place when you say, I will give all up for the gospel of Jesus. That's spiritual maturity. And Paul says, that's our aim. That's where we're running. That's what we're trying to do. And as you study, as you study the rest of Ephesians, and as you see Peter, the apostle, the first guy, as you see his writings, and then you see John, Jesus' closest friend on earth, you see his writings, then you see the letters written into the church in the book of Revelation. You see the history of the first church in the book of Acts. We start to see this picture of what the church was supposed to be. See, we don't have to reimagine church. We don't have to have strategy meetings on what church can look like. All we have to do is figure out what was the church that Jesus came to plant. We've talked about what it wasn't. It's not a building, it's not a club, it's not a business. We've talked about what it is. It's completely, wholly, and fully about Jesus. Jesus is the head, he's in charge, his spirit is the ultimate authority. It's powerful, not just emotionally moving, but powerful. The church wields the power of God. It shapes the earth. It releases the power of heaven. It's to bring freedom to the captive and proclaim the never-ending gospel. So you see in the book of Acts, the church is to operate as a family. 
It means in the church that Jesus came to plant, we stand by each other when life gets tough. We mourn when one mourns. We celebrate when one celebrates. We encourage each other. We challenge each other. We forgive each other. We give generously to ensure that all needs are taken care of. We reach out to the lost. We lay down our personal preferences for the betterment of the community. We don't divide over trivial doctrine. We make sure that the lonely finds a friend and the hopeless find hope. In the church that Jesus came to plant, we see people grow to full maturity. We don't rest on religious apathy. We preach a full gospel and we work together to represent Jesus. See, for years, this has been, uh, and it's not a bad idea to, to look and to say, okay, Christian, you're supposed to represent Jesus. You and I are to represent Jesus. But as we read the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter four, we see that the best representation of Jesus is not the individual Christian. It's the corporate church. We collectively are to represent Jesus. See, the best amongst us will fail, will fall. And so if it's up to one person to be the sole representation of Jesus, we will be sadly, sadly disappointed. But if it is the corporate church, we collectively, that represent Jesus, then when one of us falls, the other of us get to be the part of Jesus that is gracious and kind and tells them to stand back up. And we collectively then can represent the church because one of us can't be everywhere, but all of us can be a lot of places. We can be the church where it was originally intended to be. In the marketplace, in the school, in the neighborhood, at the park, while you're working, whatever it might be. And to that end, friends, you can pursue more profitable paths in life. You can get your names on buildings if you try really hard. There's other ways to secure a longer lasting legacy, to build bigger bank accounts, to have crazy adventures here on earth. But you can never, will never involve yourself in something more important, more lasting, more eternal, and more significant than the work of the church. It is the movement, the body of Christ, and it was his single aim. See, up until Matthew 15, Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 16 there, he turns the switch and he starts talking about the church. Why? Because the church is the strategy for the kingdom to happen. And you're the strategy to see the church happen. I don't think, I only got one bag left. I'm gonna keep this bag. Sorry. I don't think that pastor, that guy, could have predicted that when he threw those M&Ms into the crowd, that my heart was gonna race. That three years later, it was gonna mean laying down dreams that I had had for myself. That 12 years later, it was gonna mean planting a church. That 14 years later, it was gonna mean planting another church. Story for another day. And I don't know where you're at, but I know you have to answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? And if your answer is the Christ, the son of the living God, the risen Christ, then you only have one next step. Give your life 
to the church that Jesus came to plant. Thanks for watching this video. If you wanna learn more about our church, go ahead and click the link in the description or head on over to experienceredemption.com. Have a great week, guys.